All right, I want to begin this sermon time this evening by asking a simple question. When I say the words spiritual formation, what comes to your mind? Why don't you take a moment, share with someone next to you, spiritual formation. All right, what were some of the, uh, the comments that came out? When, what, what do you think of when you hear spiritual formation? Teaching. Growth. Fruits of the Spirit, yeah. Come on, I know you people. None of you are this quiet normally. Spiritual disciplines, sure. Okay. Oh, come on now. Come on now. As the model for why you need to take your formation seriously. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the thing that, things that pop into my head are like prayer and meditation and disciplines, which has been said. A process, the inner life. You know, we talk about inner life a lot in, in uh, Christianity. Um, here's a definition I just kind of made up, so I don't know how good it is. But spiritual formation in a Christian context is an intentional, active response to the initiative, grace, and power of Jesus to become more like Jesus. Yep. Spiritual formation in a Christian context is an intentional and active response to the initiative, grace, and power of Jesus to become more like Jesus. All right. Jesus' way, as we've been saying throughout Lent, is one of invitation not obligation. Jesus is the one who says to the weary and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Whatever yoke you've been wearing, your way of life, your, 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 your uh, slavery to your workplace or to your reputation or to some other teacher, whatever it is, my yoke is better truer, lighter, and it will lead you to life. That's the Jesus that we're talking about. And over this Lenten season, we've been exploring different ways of forming life rhythms to take Jesus up on his offer to become more like him. So three weeks ago, we looked at the importance of longing, of getting in touch with our longing to be more like Jesus, recognizing that if you don't really have a longing, you're not going to be motivated, at least for very long, uh, to follow him, right? You, you kind of got to get in touch with that longing. And we've explored the, the importance of paying attention through silence and solitude, being with Jesus without the distractions of all of the noise of, of busyness and media and all of those things, without the pressure to perform. And last week, we looked at the practice of Lectio Divina, and we actually practiced it together, slowing down, allowing Jesus to speak to us right from the Scriptures. And all of these are avenues of spiritual formation, but there's an element of spiritual formation that is sometimes counterintuitive. In fact, none of us even said it in this little experiment. It's an element that's absolutely essential, and that element is your body. Your body is essential 
to spiritual formation. Think about it. Jesus didn't call his disciples to, Peter, James, John, imagine following me. No, they actually physically left what they were doing and walked behind him and followed him all over the Palestine and Galilee and all of these places. When we practice spiritual disciplines, even the disciplines of silence and solitude where we're sitting still, we're doing it in a body. We hear our stomach grumble, and if we don't get enough rest, we're nodding off, and we can open up our posture to receive Jesus in silence and solitude and Lectio Divina with our palms up. See, our bodies are part of who we are. When you read the text aloud in Lectio Divina, you're employing dozens of muscles just in your mouth and in your your ears to make a noise and to receive the noise. You are a human being, I know that's a surprise to some of you, enfleshed, embodied, physical. How do you feel about that? That's rhetorical. But it's an important question. The human body has been viewed in myriad different ways, both within the church, across history, across religions, and cultures since the beginning of time. For the rest of our time together this evening, I'm going to expose three unhealthy ways people have viewed the human body over the years. We're going to critique those views by the Bible, and we're going to see, uh, I think, that our body can be an ally in spiritual formation. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. I'm not even going to talk about the ways that other religions view the body because it's kind of like a straw man argument. If you're not already starting with Scripture, um, then you can't expect someone to have the same, a biblical view of the body. So what we're going to do is look at the way that the church has screwed it up over the years. That'll be really fun, won't it? I mean, how shameful is this? For a movement based on a God who created stuff, and created people in bodies, became a human being himself, offers salvation in the form of eternal life in a resurrected body, the church has been surprisingly daft in its treatment of the body. And I love that I got to say daft. (laughs) At different periods in history, among different church movements, the following three errors have been put forward. Number one, the body as something to be escaped. Basically, the idea that the spirit is what counts, and the body, at best, is something that will get us in trouble, and at worst, is a prison of skin and bones that one day we're going to shed to glory. This view is popularized in songs like I'll Fly Away, which is a great melody, by the way, but it's horrible theology, and views of heaven where people are in clouds, wearing white with harps. Okay, now the problem with these views is, besides being really boring, do you really want to do that for eternity? I I love a harp. I mean, come on. It isn't that it's just boring, but it's not biblical. It all stems from a form of mythology that invaded Christianity primarily through Gnosticism. In most of the creation myths of the ancient Near East, human beings and the earth itself were accidents. They came as a result of warring gods and goddesses, sea creatures and monsters that fought each other, and a lot of them, it's like the earth and people come out of the carcass of the dead, defeated god. And people are created for the sole purpose of being slaves to those gods, to do their bidding, to do their work. Life was short and painful, 
And hope was that one day the soul would escape the body to a joyful, painless, spiritual existence. The problem is that the Bible says something completely different. In Genesis, we see a God who willingly, lovingly, intentionally, not by accident, creates heaven and earth and plants and animals and human beings. And he calls all of this stuff and all of these people very good. People with bodies, very good. Now, I know what you're thinking, maybe. What about the fall? Doesn't that change everything? After sin enters into the creation, isn't the body a lost cause? Trust me, it sure seems that way some days as we age, as we're betrayed by our brain chemistry and our impulses and our urges, as we encounter disease and sickness and disability. Escape seems very appealing sometimes. And it's easy to see why escapist theologies and eschatology would be very attractive. But the truth is even better than the lie of escapism. The truth is that God so loves us and so loves his creation that rather than scrapping the whole plan of an embodied existence, he became a human being, put on a body to redeem all of creation, including you and me. And so part of the good news of Jesus is that because he was born in the flesh, all created matter can be redeemed, made whole, made clean. It will work right again someday. The promise of Scripture through the teaching of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, through the prophets, primarily Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, the preaching of Paul, the revelation of John, all of those point to the reality that those who die in Christ will one day be raised to a new life and an embodied life, physical life. In new bodies that don't get die or don't get sick and they don't die. New bodies that work properly, that actually do the things we want to do. You know, sometimes we're we're stuck here, our brain chemistry is screwed up, and we have these impulses, and we act on them, we say things like, or at least I do, um, why did I do that? That's not me. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to think those thoughts. I, I feel betrayed by my own body, by my own thinking. The hope of a resurrected existence is when things will work right. Oh, can't wait. So the fallacy of spiritual escapism simply doesn't stand up to biblical Christianity. If we're going to be formed in the image of Jesus, then the route to that formation has to, has to include our bodies. And the first step to helping that be a reality is to simply give thanks to God for your body. It's an absolute marvel. I don't care if you're young or old, if you're fit or you don't feel very fit, if you have some part of your body that you wish worked more correctly or work better, you are a marvel Fun fact time, one square inch of your hand, you have nine feet of blood vessels, 600 pain sensors, 9,000 nerve endings, 36 heat sensors, and 75 pressure sensors. The human beings are capable of amazing acts of dexterity, creativity, and sensory perception. We can put a person on the moon, and 
you know, tell the difference between a feather and a piece of, I mean, just the, the amazing body that God has created. Your nose, and we're not even near as close to, to dogs, but your nose can remember 50,000 scents. When you dream, correct me if I'm wrong here, Connor, uh, your brain produces a hormone that virtually paralyzes your body so that when you're having that flying dream or that fighting dream, I'm a ninja in my dreams a lot of times, um, you don't actually punch the person sleeping next to you or fly out of your bed or go walk into the street. It, it keeps you safe. That's why sleepwalking is kind of a dangerous thing. Something's not working right and you're like walking around. Laid end to end, there are 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body, and every day, the average person pumps nearly 2,000 gallons of, uh, uh, of blood through your body. That is, you are amazing. You are an amazing, amazing creation. Our bodies are gifts from God, and they are a gift in the sense that they are what enable us to enact our will enable us to enact the things that are going on in our head and in our heart. They can be used for great good, and they can be used for horrible, horrible evil. Do you see the importance of formation of the heart and the mind and the body together? According to biblical theology, what bodies cannot be is ignored. Bad theology about the body has sometimes led the church to neglect physical needs. For example, promoting a faith that is merely based on the spirit and converting souls to be saved in Jesus for some other day has caused the church at times to neglect real physical needs of actual people, people starving and dying, being treated unjustly. And yet in Genesis 3, After the fall, after people have directly sinned against God in his face, God himself provides for the physical needs of Adam and Eve. That's before they show any kind of repentance. They're sorry. They're scared. But they haven't, like, changed. They haven't become new creations. Before they they thought the right thoughts or did the right things. In fact, it was a result of their sin that God had to clothe them in the first place and protect them and provide for them. And then promise to give them new lands, a place to dwell, a place to roam, a place, a context. God provided clothing, provision, land, life, embodied. Part of spiritual formation in the body includes trusting Jesus to provide for our physical needs. And these familiar words of Jesus from Matthew 6 ring uh, to that. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat, as to what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, could add a single hour to their life? Remember, then he talks about the the flowers of the field, which are here today, they're gone tomorrow, but yet in their radiance, they're dressed more beautifully than the wonderful, amazing King Solomon in all his fanciest robes. If God so cares about the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field that are temporary, how much more his children, 
made in His image. And of course, one of the ways that God provides for His children is through one another. When there's a famine in Palestine, God rose up Joseph in Egypt. And he was able, through his wisdom and his position, to make sure that the people in Palestine had enough food to endure seven years of famine. Following Jesus is more than just believing the right ideas about Jesus. It's more than just checking off boxes on a theology test about doctrine. Following Jesus is acting on those ideas. We can't just say we love somebody and then not care for them. 1 John 3.17 says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide? We can train our bodies to be agents of good through practice. Just like you can get better at golfing by practicing well or baseball, anything, music, by practice. And on March 31st, on a Thursday late afternoon, we'll have an opportunity to go work at the food bank. It's one small way that we can practice. And it's a discipline because it means not doing something that might be more fun than working at the food bank. It might be giving up something really good even to do something that is outside your comfort zone. Which leads us to our second fallacy about the body. My body is mine to indulge in however I please. And I think that this is where much of the struggle lands in our culture. It's not so much that we deny the importance of the body. Instead, we make the body all important. We live in a land where we literally spend, as a nation, billions and billions of dollars on cosmetics and fragrances and fashion. Hey, I love it. I like to smell nice. Obviously, I'm not too big into fashion, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. There's nothing wrong with these things, but sometimes we just get so overboard on them. We're terrified in our nation of pain and discomfort. And one of the worst things, one of the worst things we could possibly conceive of in our culture would be the prospect of someone or some group having the audacity to tell me what I can and can't do with my body. And you know that's true. We hate that in our culture. And again, the Bible critiques the idea of absolute autonomy and self-indulgence. First of all, we recall that we're made by somebody else. Like, you didn't just show up on your own. I mean, if even if you just take biology into consideration, I don't need to go down that road, but you, the Bible says you're created by the will of God. So you're someone else's, but also you're created for something. You and I have been given vocation. And that vocation, whatever you do for your profession, your vocation, every single one of us, is to be an embodied image bearer of God. We are to reflect His creativity, His character, His good and nurturing rule over all creation. To say it another way, you and I are living breathing, embodied reflections of a God who loves his creation so much, he emptied himself of his rightful place, his rightful status to become one of us. That's the God we're supposed to reflect, a God who gives his life for someone else. We do not see a picture of God as one who laughs at suffering, as he 
sits with a leg over the armchair of his throne eating peeled grapes and drinking wine to, to excess, right? Like, that's not the picture. I've never seen that picture in the Bible of God. What I see instead is a God who is sacrificial and who takes initiative to love us. If we're to be formed in His image, we would do well to train our bodies to do the things that God does. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses some of the people in the church who were soliciting prostitutes, having sex outside of marriage, getting drunk and gorging themselves at these pagan parties, and this is what he writes, flee immorality. He doesn't just say, like, stand up to immorality or have a conversation about immorality. He says, flee from it. Like, it's so alluring and so dangerous. Do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. That's a clashing statement with our culture. You are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I got to make a distinction there. Paul is talking to the church. These are people who have said yes to Jesus, who have been baptized and received the Spirit of God, okay? He's not talking to the world. And I think that's an important distinction, by the way, now that I'm on this tangent, is that when we explain what it means to follow Jesus, we can't just talk about, hey, you're guilty and you need to pray this prayer and your sins are forgiven. We're talking about a new way of life. We're talking about, hey, the things that you used to do, that's fine before you followed Christ. It's not fine, but the church has nothing to say about that. We're not here to judge the world. The church has a lot to say, and Paul has a lot to say about people who were baptized and identified with, with Jesus who died for them, and then want to basically stomp on what he's done through these actions. He's saying, no, 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 you are now a new creation. Now that you've been baptized and you're part of the church, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You can't take something that's holy and then unite it with a prostitute or be part of these pagan parties anymore. Our bodies have incredible abilities, but it takes intentional training to get them to do what we want them to do. Otherwise, we come to realize that our bodies control us rather than us controlling them. So self-indulgence for most of us, I would say for all of us in some degree, is an issue. And so if that's true for you in some way, shape, or form, no judging, it's true for me, a little self-discipline is helpful. And the the first step in bodily self-discipline is to give thanks for our body. To give thanks for our body. Our bodies are not the enemy. My children are not my enemy either. But if I let them eat whatever they want when they want, or watch whatever they want whenever they want, I would be creating monsters. I would be abusing them. Right? So set boundaries for yourself. And do it in the most gentle way. Take 20 minutes this week. Take 20 minutes. Sit with Jesus. Thank Him for your body. The incredible creation that it is. And ask Him to reveal any areas where you are out of balance. Is He inviting you to make a change for the sake of something better? Maybe to cut something out. Maybe it's a a food or a certain media form, or maybe just you've been oversaturated with media. Maybe you just need a media fast for a little bit. 
or maybe it's a certain drink, or staying up too late. Maybe He's inviting you to say no to some of those things, or maybe He's inviting you to something new. This Lent, I've started the practice of exercise again. Uh, I am a pathetic man who runs. I am not a runner, uh, and I am pathetic. But I'm doing it three times a week because I don't want to die young because I've been abusing my body. I have been, this is a confession, I've been abusing my body, thinking that it was more important for me to do a little bit more work rather than taking care of myself. That is not fair to my family. That's not fair to you. What happens in 10 years when I turn 51, when I start having all these hypertension problems, you got to, hopefully you're still backing me and, uh, you know, you got to pay while this bonehead who didn't do a little bit of exercise is now really unhealthy. All right, so I'm just saying that. I'm trying to exercise three times a week to make time to do it because that, for me, this Lenten season, it, this is what I need to do. I need to start this habit so I can continue on and be a healthy person. Maybe what Jesus is inviting you into is more prayer or maybe more service or maybe more study. I don't know. Ask him. I'm not him. All I know is it's good to get in front of him and ask him because he'll tell you. And whatever it is, pay attention to Jesus because his voice is clear, but it is so gentle. He's the good shepherd. If you hear a harsh voice, a condemning voice, a judging voice, a, a you should voice, or you ought to, or you better, that's probably not Jesus. That's the thief who comes to kill your joy and steal your life. Jesus isn't like that. It's a fine line between healthy discipline and the third error I see concerning the body that the church has been a part of over the years, and that is abuse of the body. Abuse of the body. You know, it's easy to look back at the Middle Ages, and when people used to do self-flagellation, take a little whip, and I sinned, and I'm going to do this to absolve myself. First of all, that's really bad theology. Only Jesus can forgive you, um, and whipping isn't going to help. But people used to do that. In fact, Martin Luther, well, you know, he's an Augustinian priest, and before he had his conversion experience of receiving the grace of Jesus, he used to feel so bad about his sin that at times in winter in Germany, he would sleep outside of his house in the snow. He once got frostbite. Uh, I think he lost half a toe. I mean, he's just shivering because he wants to purge himself of these feelings of guilt. That's body abuse. Jesus never asks us to do that. And much of body abuse stems from seeing the body as the source of evil, of seeing our bodies as bad. And unfortunately, this is primarily played out in the female body, as if a woman's beauty is the cause of a man's lust. And of course, this works both ways. This is not just a one-way street. When you think of Joseph who was sexually assaulted by Potiphar's wife, who was lusting after him. So it goes both ways. I'm not saying that, but I digress. Again, in the story of creation in Genesis, we see in 1, 26 and 27, the bold proclamation that men and women in their full sexuality are created in God's image, male and female, in God's image. And I say that this is a bold proclamation because in the period when Genesis was oral tradition and being penned into Scripture, it was a completely patriarchal society. There are no other 
creation stories like this one from anywhere near centuries on either side where there is equality between the sexes. There are some that exist where Lilith and, and certain females are definitely seen as higher than men. Those are in the minority. But there's none where we're seeing men and women made in the image of God together. The marginalization of women is something that we need to combat head on, and it needs to start in the church. The church should have the loudest voice about this. But in many ways, at Lettered Streets at least, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a bit. I have not perceived any of you to be a misogynist. I have not perceived any of you to, and this, I'm not joking, to be self-flagellators. Some of you are hard on yourself. But that doesn't mean I don't see body abuse going on. And I'm going to give two examples and let you fill in the blanks about other ways that come to mind for yourself. But I want to talk about two ways I see body abuse going on amongst us in our culture. The first is body image. God created humans, male and female, and he called them very good. The Bible does not say what they looked like, but judging from the wide variety of plants and animals and landscapes from deserts to mountains to oceans to lakes, it would not surprise me at all if God loved diversity. In fact, I'm just going to say he does because it doesn't make sense if he doesn't. The Bible does not say that God created thin white women and muscular men, and they were called very good. The Bible does not say God created tall people or short people, and they were called very good. It does not say God created thin people, or as I like to put it, people genetically enhanced to survive a famine. It doesn't say that. <laughs> it doesn't say which skin color is good, or body shape is good, or age is good, or IQ is good. And yet, our culture sure seems willing to tell us what is good and who is good and who is beautiful and what body type is acceptable. The amount of body image self-loathing in our culture and the cultures of mostly industrialized nations is astonishing. By the way, you notice in cultures where they don't sell beauty products and you know, capitalism isn't a big deal, there's a lot less of this body image stuff because our markets want to convince you that you're too ugly without my product. And they love it when we're anxious about ourselves, so we keep on buying the stuff. This is, uh, I say this, uh, reading some sociological stuff coming out of China right now, now that it's going to a more capitalist economy, and pe pe all these billionaires are rising up. What are they getting rich on? It's the first one to make a cosmetic. It's the first one to provide uh, feminine products. It's and it's just like, hey, we've cornered the market, and now that we have all of this rising middle class with disposable income, or disposable income, we can buy all this crap that we used to not think was important anymore. We literally abuse ourselves through eating disorders and self-hatred and insecurity and overwhelming anxiety, and some of you know what I'm talking about, just leaving the house sometimes. How will I be perceived today? It's like being in middle school forever. But God created us with different skin colors and different body types and different abilities and different IQs. And no matter where you are in that spectrum, you are very good in His eyes. And the church needs to be a place of all places where we can be loved and accepted as God sees us, not as the world sees us. This needs to be a different place, which is one of my prayers, and you can join me in that for our kids it's hard enough in the schools that they're going to, but this needs to be a place where they can feel safe.
And another, so that's one way I see abuse going on in our culture and even in our church. The other way is through overwork. And I'm guilty here. I'm preaching to myself, okay? But whether it's ambition to climb the ladder, corporate or otherwise, the hardest part is when you believe you're called to good work. Ministry, art, counseling, education, business ownership, medicine, all of the, I mean, there's, you can go on. There's so many good things to do out there. Stay-at-home mom and dads, you name it. We are susceptible to overworking, to literally killing ourselves with stress and lack of rest and lack of exercise and sacrificing relationships because we've bought into the lie somewhere along the line that externals equal success and success equal my value. Some of us choose overwork to feel valuable, to appear valid and relevant. If you're in a hyper-competitive workplace and everyone else is killing themselves, it's hard to say no because you don't want to stand out as the slacker, even though it might be normal. We want to make up for the person in the mirror that's staring back at us because we're afraid if we slow down, too much, we might have to face that person. It's easier to stay busy. But if you are God's image bearer, and the Bible says you are, then being tired and always stressed and always rushed and always anxious is not the life that God intends to you. I'm sorry, it's just not. Hear me. Sometimes life is just hard, right? Like Jesus. Jesus once sweat blood. He was so stressed because of his vocation and his calling. He once was in a boat in a massive storm and was so tired from ministry, he was sleeping through the storm, okay? And you know, there is something very, I, I, I secretly like, not secretly, I love a good push on a project. Or like finishing up that last paper in grad school before the deadline. You know, there's, there's something cathartic, satisfying about working really hard on something important. We all have to do that sometimes, okay? But that cannot then become the norm for us or we will be fried. So I'm not saying that your life should always be like, mm, that would be so boring. There's a time, there's a season for everything. Would your friends, though, describe you as primarily full of joy and full of life? or primarily stressed and calculated? And who cares what your friends say? Are you healthy? Are you healthy? Some of you are employers and managers. You employ and manage people made in the image of the living God. His children, your brothers and sisters, are your employees more than agents of production in your eyes more than a means to an end. How are you working to create a culture of self-care and efficiency? Happy employees make for effective, loyal employees. Jesus called his disciples to very high standards, but he also called them to rest, to pull away and to retreat and to have fun. Fun does not sound spiritual. In fact, let me just do this exercise. Close your eyes if you're comfortable. 
Picture Jesus right now. Okay, come back. First image to pop in your mind when you picture Jesus, what do you see? Anyone see white robe? Anyone see usually the profile staring off? (laughs) Not too happy, not too sad, pretty unhuman. Blonde, maybe, I don't know. Some other screwed up view. When we think of a spiritual person, don't we think of guys like Gandhi? It's funny, every picture I've ever seen of Gandhi, he's hardly ever doing anything. At least the Dalai Lama always has this big smile. He's so happy about it, but he's always smiling at least. But spiritual people, we have this idea, they, boy, they must never run, and they must, must never sweat or go to the bathroom or have gas. Or, I mean, Jesus was in a real body just like yours. I mean, he's, he probably stank a lot. Could you imagine, you know, Ryan plays basketball, could you imagine posting up on Jesus, like him giving you a little booty, working around you, going in for a lay-in? Could you, isn't that weird to think of Jesus doing that? Or how about Jesus playing soccer and getting all muddy and sweaty? You guys are fighting for the ball. He gives you a little elbow. Yeah, what's up? How about playing Settlers of Catan with Jesus and he won't give you any ore? <laughs> He's saving up for a city. Why should he lay, you know? We don't typically think of Jesus having fun Telling jokes about Peter that time he sank at the sea because he thought he was big stuff around the campfire. I mean, I think Jesus is the type of guy that would kind of have a little bit of fun with us. But we don't often think of it. And that betrays what we really think about Jesus and what we really think about what it means to be spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is not boring. And I don't think Jesus was boring. Jesus is more than a person who endured his time in his body just so he could get his job done. He is the body life giver. And you know if you are overburdened, if you, you know you're overburdened, if you cannot imagine what fun thing you would want to do if you got a magical day off to, to tomorrow. If you got a magical day off of your job and you cannot imagine what honestly sounds fun, you might be close to burnout. Maybe for you, a discipline this Lent is to play. I once knew a guy in ministry who his Lenten discipline, I think it was four or three years ago, uh, was to watch Jimmy Fallon every night of the week because Jimmy Fallon, love him or hate him, the dude is full of joy. He has so much fun in his job. And so this guy, his spiritual discipline was to watch Jimmy Fallon. And the roots are awesome too. Maybe your discipline could be having more fun. What would, it, what would you feel like if you got enough rest? That is, I'm sorry if you're a new parent uh, or you have a new puppy in the house or something. That, that's just, I'm going to say what everybody always says, this too shall pass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but for some of us, it's self-inflicted, right? We stay up late, we burn the candle at both ends. What would it look like to actually be rested, to actually get seven or eight hours of sleep? My goodness. That's another one of my disciplines, by the way. <laughs> you can check up on me on it. What would, it, what would it look like to take your diet seriously? I'm not talking about like eating less, maybe that's a thing, but eating well, eating fresh, eating healthy things. What would it look like to ride your bike more, go for a hike, or join a sports team, do like a, a I don't know what it is for you. That's some of my things, obviously, it comes out of my preaching. 
But what would it look like to have more fun and more joy? I'll close with this. The reason we're able to embrace our bodies at all, with all of their strengths and with all of their weaknesses, is because of Jesus, because he changed absolutely everything. In our fallen state, we are bound for destruction. But Jesus was born in a body, thus emphasizing that creation is good. Jesus died on the cross to take all of our sin and the consequence of our sin, and he rose in a new and glorified body, the prototype of what is to come for all of us who put our faith in him. And that's very good news. Lord Jesus, thank you for creating us. Help us to be thankful for the things we can be thankful for. To be repentant of the ways that we've abused ourselves and other people. But also to hear your invitation to new life. I am so appreciative, Lord, that you are the God of life. That you have a way forward that is joyful and meaningful. Hmm. May we find rest in you today. Amen.